My first rifle was a 243. Papa gave daddy and daddy gave to me. And they taught me how to shoot with a steady hand. I guess that's something you don't understand. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to another episode of All American Wing Shooting Podcast. We have the one and only Stephen Murray back on here. Joining us from the UK, he has had two other episodes with us. He is full of knowledge, history, wisdom, and current events. Stephen, thank you so much for coming back. Hey, good morning, Anna. How are you doing? I'm good. It's so it's always good to see you. Thank you. So, so what's, what's happening? Well, um, you know, we, as you and I have discussed about the lead ban, like that is probably the number one thing I would say is the biggest fear for us shooters here in the States. Um, I know that SCI is addressing the situation. It's a topic of interest in their office on a daily basis. And um, I was talking with Anne-Marie Dormeus down in um, Arkansas, and she was talking about how they've received a grant from Midway USA. Um, They're focusing on building new shooting complexes to get more youth and new shooters involved in the shooting game. And it's like everybody I talk to the confluence foundation, um, they're all focused on making sure that people have opportunity. Right. And so when you and I sit back and we talk about the things that you guys are dealing with, which seem to make their way across over to the U S it's like, ah, Like, we've already been in an ammo crisis here, and no one wants to return to that. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah, you know, in the UK, um, we are facing a a lead shot ban uh, for all uh, game shooting. To be clear, there's been a lead shot ban uh, for wildfowling, that's shooting uh, ducks and geese on the foreshore, um, for almost 20 years. So... It's nothing new for us over here. However, what is new is the, I have to use, uh, choose my words carefully, shall we say the Green Party, um, who would prefer to see a ban on everything, including shooting, um, have persuaded um, certain people that have uh, the power to do something about what they're told um, that shooting wild game, um, pheasants, partridge, grouse, etc., with lead shot is a danger to not only the wildlife, but also to human beings as well. Now, we know that for 300 years, um, the thick end of that sort of period, when there's actively been game shooting certainly since the mid 1850s lead shot has been prevalent everywhere Uh, and i don't think um there are too many uh cemeteries full of bodies that have died because they've consumed a piece of uh chicken breast or piece of uh pheasant breast that's had a, a lump of lead shot in it um so that's where we are now the lead shot Ban um, had a honeymoon period of about five years, and we are about three years into that honeymoon period, the transition from moving to, uh, from lead 
to a lead substitute. I'm reluctant to use the word steel shot because it it tends to get everybody running in all sorts of different directions. But there are other alternatives to lead and European cousins in the Scandinavian countries, they've been using lead alternatives for the thick end of 15 years. And so there are things like bismuth, um, bismuth tungsten. There's an all number of alternatives to lead. So we than, have that here in the States. Yeah, you have it. But, yeah. But that's outrageous. It's um it's not used on clay courses because the recoil and the price. Yes. It's not an efficient replacement for no. Way the U.S. is set up with all of our shooting sports. Sure, there, that's the significant um, part of the whole of this that everybody is overlooking: that the efficiency of lead uh, far outweighs anything that comes close. Um, heavy steel shot loads. Uh, we're talking thirty-two gram upwards. Um, yes, that is starting to uh, come into line with lead but of course you have to go at least two shot sizes up so if you're using number six for example on on uh, quail you've got to go down to number four to make sure that you're going to get a clean kill nobody Um, wants to do that (laughs) no no and also um in the UK, we've got a, a, a big problem with people are thinking that there is only steel shot as an alternative to lead. And that's absolutely not the case. In actual fact, um, we've got a situation uh, ongoing. People are looking at the lead shot ban. They're looking at the fact we've had two years of COVID. Um, the smaller syndicate shoots have been closing down. Uh, to obtain a gun license now is a little bit more difficult. It requires a medical certificate for which the applicant has to pay. There's a delay. It could be between six months to a year before the renewal is granted. And people are frankly just giving up shooting. And there's some guns coming onto the market. I mean, I'm, I'm talking classic AYAs, Ariettas, all of the classic cyberside wing shooting guns that are effectively um, being not scrapped, but uh, a £1,500 gun is is being sold for £300. It's absolutely ridiculous. There's nothing wrong with it. What a lot of people do not understand is if you've got a modern gun, that is to say a two and three quarter inch chambered gun that's uh, got good wall thicknesses, and by good wall thickness, I mean in excess of 26 thou at the minimum and the choke restriction is less than 50 percent choke that is to say half choke you will be able to use still shot standard pressure quite safely it will not damage the gun however if you start looking at the superior uh still shot the high pressure loads then you could be running into trouble. So as a general rule, if you're looking at using a full choke in an old gun, that full choke must not be any tighter than half choke for a lead shot barrel. 
And, and that's really where we are. Provided it's a modern gun and it's in good condition, it will be okay, but not for su superior steel shot. And that's something that people over here are missing. Um, I know when I was in uh, Wing and Barrel in California um, in 2019, the, uh, the guys out there were very concerned because the lead shot band was coming in into the clay ground. And that was a, a big blow to them because they would they had already uh, ordered uh, enough uh, cartridges for the season. And at the end of the day, they had a surfeit of cartridges and the threat was that they wouldn't be able to use them because the regulation was fast approaching still shot uh, only, a lead shot ban even on clay grounds. But it goes further than that over here. And I'm sure it will do in the United States as well. If you take the 2-2 long rifle, the ubiquitous little Winchester repeater that everybody, every kid I know, uh, cuts his teeth on a 2-2 Winchester pump-action repeating gun. Those little lead shot, uh, sorry, uh, lead bullets, where are you going to get a substitute for a 2-2 rimfire lead shot bullet? You can't. They don't exist. And so they're now thinking that provided the um, the, the uh, use of that is on private property, that they could uh, allow, in inverted commas, people to continue to use the 2-2 long rifle instead of going to 1-7, perhaps with a, a copper jacket or going up a size. And that's a, that's a whole new ball game. So that it, they're trying to... Um, Draw a line in the sand in the UK. Wild fouling, yes, it's going to be um, non-lead. Uh, game shooting, eventually, yes, non-lead. But car, uh, clay target shooting and 2-2 rifle shooting, that is uh, target shooting, and shooting uh, pests, rabbits, etc. on your own property, you should continue, uh, in theory, to be able to use lead only and we've all got our fingers crossed it's yet to be decided but it's looking positive well that is good news but no one's going to have guns left to actually have fun that's the trouble yeah that's the trouble um, so how does that work if if you apply for your permit and then it takes so long because of all the delays that your permit expires during the delay while you're waiting on your new permit how does that work OK, what happens in the UK is you have to surrender your uh, firearm, and I use the term firearm as opposed to shotgun, to a um, registered firearms dealer who will hold it until your shotgun certificate or your firearm certificate is renewed. In the United States, the gun licenses are slightly different. Um, aside from handguns, long guns, uh, rifles and shotguns, uh, are more or less in the same category. In the U UK, uh, a rifle, a centerfire rifle, uh, is a completely different category to a shotgun. A centerfire rifle is a firearm, uh, typically in 243, 308, or 762. Um, and uh, a, sh a shotgun is, is another category. It's the difference between what we call section one, a firearm, and section two, which is a shotgun. Shotgun certificates. Um, are relatively uh, commonplace firearm certificates, much less so in the United Kingdom, unless you're going um, stalking for 
the, the the growing population of deer in the UK, and um, we've got a lot of non-indigenous uh, deer species, uh, muntjac <clears throat> particularly, and uh, they're becoming quite a pest and they need to be controlled. Hmm, that brings up a whole nother topic when you talk about using hunters for conservation and controlling, yeah. managing species. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The little muntjac is destroying... Uh, crops very low to the ground that the uh the seeker the roe the red and the fallow um <laughs> there's basically there's nothing left once that little monk jack uh or the, the chinese water deer has come in and 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 eaten everything it's uh having a knock-on effect on our indigenous population of deer <clears throat> so how does the tags work there for um for hunting game okay um it's uh it's it's quite a uh, well controlled um i say well controlled in a, a term to say strictly controlled um you've got to have rights to shoot over uh, a certain area generally the uh constabulary uh, that is to say the the different state for want of a better word the different uh counties um will send a representative of a police officer to look at where you're going to be shooting to ensure that where you're shooting is going to be safe. And if you've got the landowner's permission and you've passed the um, British Deer Society um, courses to enable you to shoot deer, then you can take uh, a wild beast on private land with the owner's permission, provided the police have approved the land for that purpose. Is the, So... Is that per season that the police have to check it out? Uh, no, it, we don't. Uh, we have uh, open and closed seasons similar to you. But once that's been granted, um, unless there's a, a variation, uh, unless somebody's built something or the topography of the land has changed, that pretty much stays in place. It is reviewed um, when the uh, firearms license becomes uh, uh, up for renewal. Um, they will ask, where do you shoot? Why do you need a gun license? Why do you need a 243? Why do you need a 308? And you have to prove why you need those particular calibers uh, because you could be taking, you know, smaller deer, um, little roe deer with uh, a 243 or a big stag, a red a red stag uh, with a 308. So you have to explain what you're, what you're doing. It's so different oh over here, isn't it? gosh, like... <laughs> I am getting anxiety just listening to you talk about what you have to go through, even though I've, I mean, I've never experienced it, but it literally sounds like you're asking permission to live. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's it's quite different. Uh, I know when you can go, you can go, uh, let, let, let's say, for example, quail shooting, you know, you can um, take one of your lovely uh, wire heads out and uh, shoot. Uh, over the dog's head, shooting at quail, um, you know, bringing up coveys and shooting them. And provided, you know, you're doing that in a safe manner, there's absolutely no problem. In the United Kingdom, uh, the shooting is is really strictly controlled. Um, unless you're a big landowner and you've got you know, your own uh, um, rights to shoot and you've got your own game put down, uh, the, the average guy in the street, We'll have to uh, go on a, a shoot, and 
he could pay up to a thousand pounds a day uh to go shooting what would that be in prison. u.s dollars um uh, about uh, 120 uh, 1250 to go uh and shoot dollars uh, a day pheasant for a day and that's and that, no accommodations that's just oh, no 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 that that's just that goes that goes to the um that goes to the uh, landowner that goes towards the gamekeeper uh, the um, the raising from poults or from even from eggs. So you go eggs to poults, poults to rearing pens, rearing pens to releasing the birds. You've got to do the vermin control. Um, there's all sorts of uh, other things that the average guy in the street doesn't actually see, um, particularly, uh, shall we say, the more wealthily affluent uh, people who work in the city. Uh, and somebody gets an invitation, yeah, we're going to go, Shooting pheasant up in uh, North Yorkshire. Wow, that's fantastic. Okay, what's it going to cost? It's going to cost you about a thousand pounds. Give you an indication. Twenty nineteen, before COVID, um, a pheasant in the southern counties, uh, which are more expensive, um, was about thirty five pounds a bird. And uh, now that's ninety pounds a bird. Um, and so, if you've got a hundred bird day, you know it doesn't take too long to to rack up that money. If you've got a big bag day, a 250 uh, bag day, wow, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and the uh, problem is um, we, we've had COVID restrictions. We've had uh, influenza, a, avian influenza. Uh, it swept through the whole of Northern Europe. Um, we couldn't get eggs. We couldn't get poults uh, unless somebody was lucky and they already had uh, a lot of um, cocks and hens left over from the previous season that were breeding freely, um, there were just no birds about. And so it was a, 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 a gradual closing down of the smaller syndicates. Um, the bigger guys, the commercial shoots, they are still faring okay. But of course, with less people, you have to lay off underkeepers, uh, you have to lay off flaggers, you have to lay off beaters. Um, there's the dog handlers. There's a lot of people in the uh, rural community in the United Kingdom that absolutely rely on shoots um, because it, it provides extra income. You know, if you're on the middle of Ilkley Moor, um, you know, the nearest large town is 15 miles away. Your children uh, can't get a job in McDonald's on a Saturday to, to bring in some pocket money. Um, all they've got is uh, doing picking up and beating and then and, and running the dogs and that sort of thing. So it's hugely important to the rural community over here. Yeah, so the tradition of it is forced because that's the only thing available, but yet then the laws are restricting it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. How does society there, like what is the mood of that? Because you've traveled here enough to know exactly the attitude of the American hunter. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. And so it's it's just foreign when you when you do come here and you share the culture of where you live for us to even fathom being conditioned to accept that. Sure. Uh, you and I had this conversation a little while ago, Anna, and you mentioned quite uh, astutely that um, there's there's the two ends of the spectrum. There's there's 10 percent who are absolutely pro uh, hunting and the. Uh, the American way of life. There's the other end are absolutely against it at 10%. And the 80% in the middle, they're kind of 
you know, non-committal. They just kind of sit on the fence and they're not too anxious one way or the other. In the United Kingdom, sadly, the reverse applies. There's sort of five to 10 percent at the uh, top end who agree and understand that conservation um, and wildlife management, including shooting, is hugely important to keep the countryside running. There's the other side, and it's about 30 percent that think shooting should absolutely be banned. And so we're always fighting a rearguard action. We're talking um, that there are more inner cities um, per capita in the UK than probably anywhere else in the world, with the exception of places like Hong Kong and India, obviously. But um, the people that live in the centre of towns have really got no concept of, of land management and how important it is to have set aside um we, we have a, an expression here in the UK, uh, don't mow in May. Uh, the reason you don't mow your grass in May is because there's a lot of insects, there's um, uh, flies. There. There's all sorts of things that are, are trying to breed and get ready for the spring. And so we say don't mow in May. Now, if you explain that to somebody who lives in a tower block, um, you know, a, a, an apartment block in, in the middle of the city, they cannot understand that. And it's not their fault. It's just... It's totally alien to them, the concept of wildlife management, and they cannot understand that uh, uh, paying £1,000 a day to go and shoot uh, 50, 100 pheasants is very important to the rural community. It keeps the, the hedgerows hedge clear. Uh, it keeps the predators down. It allows um, biodiversity to continue. But, of course, they don't really understand that. It's... That doesn't happen on inner cities. And, you know, hey, some of these people have never been outside the city. You know, if you explain where Yorkshire Moor is, they haven't got a clue. Or the Scottish Islands, you know, they haven't got a clue. It's just something that's an alien concept to them. So I can understand it, but it is very frustrating when you've got um, people who are beating the drum saying, oh, you know, we shouldn't be allowed to shoot pheasants and you shouldn't be allowed to control deer and you shouldn't be allowed to shoot duck and et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a lack of understanding. That's all it is. I don't, I don't understand how tolerant you are. <laughs> you just come across with so much grace because if they don't understand and they still have such a strong opinion, I just feel like we as Americans, and, and this goes back to, we've had this discussion too about the heart of the American hunter and standing up for what you believe for. And that, country song that everybody knows um the lyric that says you got to stand for something yes. right or your fall yeah. for anything like it was such a trend of a song and who knew that those lyrics would literally mean life or death of the lifestyle that we love sure. and what is so crazy here and watching your world is that people have literally been conditioned to believe it's wrong and that it's oh like like it's okay to not understand it's okay yes. to be against something without understanding and without experience and without even like being exposed to the concept it's okay to just say no and it yeah. and it's not you know and yeah. so they've been given so much grace when it brings consequences to the people that do understand the people that do the people that are, that have proof 
you know, they're the bad guys. And so yeah. I, I become irate about all this. And, um, <laughs> and it's just such a foreign concept for me. I cannot wrap my head around it and I cannot accept it. Yeah. Yeah. We, we've had a very clear indication. Um, I keep going on about Yorkshire because it's a very popular place to go grouse shooting. Yeah. Um, the Bradford council, there's, there's two councils uh, that control the moorland area in Yorkshire. Um, it's what they call the West Riding of Yorkshire. The Bradford side of the council is is what you would call um, a Democrat or a socialist, a Labour-run uh, local authority. Um, and the people who don't go shooting are more likely to be socialists than, than conservatives or Republicans. Um they pressurised uh, Bradford Council to ban grouse shooting on the Bradford side of Ilkley Moor. Um, that bill was passed uh, about five years ago. Um, we've now got a situation where the ramblers and the people that have walked across that beautiful part of West Yorkshire for scores of years, hundreds of years, are finding it is, it's totally inaccessible. There's no walkways, there's no pathways, it's all overgrown. Um, it's almost a no-go area. And they're complaining now um, that the council aren't doing anything. The Bradford Authority are doing nothing to ensure that these walkways, et cetera, were kept open. It was never Bradford uh, local authorities' responsibility. It always fell on the gamekeepers and the people that were shooting, they maintained um, access and the viability of that particular part of Yorkshire Moor. But when that was taken away, the system collapsed and everybody's saying, how can this be? You know, nature runs itself. No, it doesn't run itself. You know, nature needs a helping hand. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So. What like what is going on? What actions are being taken there to stand up for a lifestyle here in the states? You know, when I first started, sorry, my <laughs> my phone just went. <laughs> um, sorry, Anna, could you ask the question again? For like here in the states, when I first started wing shooting, it was always talked about how the the Brits were the originals the you know they set the standard and it's like how do people lose the pride in something that was their original tradition that the whole wide world has embraced and wanted yeah. to be a part of you know what what happened to lose that i mean you told us stories on this podcast about taking care of the queen's guns yes and, you know and it's like all of a sudden all those memories all that tradition um, the legacy of that has just been erased. There's like no yeah. pride in that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you're very familiar with the uh, fantastic TV series Downton Abbey. Yeah. Um, you know, the, there was a, a very traditional sort of Edwardian situation, post-Victorian, um, moving into the, uh, the 1920s. And shooting in the uk it's what we call the halcyon days you know late victorian days um the maharaja dulip singh uh earl de grey lord walsingham um the prince of wales uh you know the, the, the queen's uh son they all went shooting and it was the big thing there wasn't anything else to do and of course um the land was available 
the shoots were available. Uh, there were gamekeepers um, uh, in just about every cottage uh, in the countryside. Uh, and game shooting was huge. And it was never under threat because there was never um, a situation where the landowners were going to stop shooting. Uh, however, as the, um, the, the, the gentry system started to uh, contract uh, and become a little bit more um, focused and not so uh, broad um, across the whole of the UK, um, the land that we traditionally shot on has rescinded. It's, it's, it's got smaller. Uh, and we're, we're obviously we're still, still keeping alive the game shooting. However, mm-hmm. it's just not as widespread. It's not as uh, commonplace as it once was. And so, you know, we're, yeah, we, we like to think that we're still, you know, um, shooting with the uh, Maharaja Dilip Singh and Lord Walsingham and Elder Grey and the Prince. But in, in reality, we're not, uh, the, not to use a, the incorrect word, the landscape of shooting has changed over here. You know, and we're seeing a lot of those changes here too. I saw a post and shared it this week because I have been a huge um, fan and and pro- like f- wanted to promote p- uh, private land. We hear so much about conservation for public lands all the time, but people don't realize that when all the land is public, we don't necessarily get a voice, right? Sure. So um, the out there's a there's a organization called Outdoor Stewards, and they posted this last week that 51 percent of um, like shooting sports happens on private land here in the states. And and that that was a really good thing for me to see and to share because. You know, it, it doesn't just trickle down or just start with the guns. Like it starts with so many different things that makes it so hard. And and we have um, our families in the ag industry and it takes land to make things work and sure. taxes and and all the things that go against us that eat up profits. They they push you right out of being a big public or private landowner. Yeah, that's so, right. You know, so so you have all these goals that you set and then and then we're sitting here focused on lead bands. But then if 51 percent of people are shooting on private land, then how are people supposed to keep their private land to keep shooting? Like, you know, it's just it's this big circle. And and I don't know that we talk about it enough in such a big picture for people to understand how all of this is actually connected. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an education thing, Anna, and people who don't shoot or have no inclination to go shooting tend not to understand it. I mean, um, uh, one of my relatives, um, he, he he was honestly of the opinion that you could just buy a shotgun uh, and go walking through a park somewhere, and if you <laughs> saw a pheasant, you could shoot it, you know, because you have a gun license. I said, no, it really doesn't work like that. And they said, where, where do you go shooting, you know? Uh, and I said, well, you know, you go here, there and everywhere. Um, you, you, you know, probably have to travel. You have to stay overnight um, because of the sensible drinking and driving laws. You can't enjoy yourself at the post shoot lunch um, without having a couple of beers. If you've had a couple of beers, obviously, insensibly, you can't drive. 
Uh, and so you you stay up the night before and the hotel is about 150 quid. You stay that night, that's another 150 quid. It's cost you uh, uh, £1,000 to go shooting. You know, it soon uh, ticks up that by the time you bought the cartridges, given tips, um, tip the gamekeeper, et cetera, et cetera, you know, a day shooting has cost you £2,000. And he said, well, why is it so expensive? And I said, well, that's the cost of... And he said, no, that's absolutely rubbish. In in one of the big supermarkets over here, Waitrose, you can buy a brace of pheasant for uh, seven pounds. I said, well, yeah, that's because they've already been shot, you know, or the keeper <laughs> and the land management and all of that has already been paid for by the guy that was shooting. And he just could not understand that if you can go into a supermarket and buy a brace of... Uh, birds for seven quid white costs 90 pound a bird to shoot them uh and he just couldn't get his head around it it's unsurprising um and it you know <laughs> i'm i'm probably getting a little bit too old to sit down with somebody and explain why <laughs> if they don't understand they won't understand <laughs> that is sad that statement yeah. is, um it it is something that at my age like i cannot accept that people are so stuck in their ways or their mentality when they don't have the experience that they really can't learn. That's just, it just really feels so foreign. And you know, because we've traveled together here, like it was hard for you to embrace our freedoms that I actually took for granted before our relationship, you know, because it's always been that way. We, uh, you broke up just a little bit there, but we do admire it because, uh, you know, provided you're safe with a gun, you're welcome back. And, and of course, you know, as uh, the majority of people um, that I engage with in the United States, for obvious reasons, are, are sporting men and women. And, uh, you know, I'm in absolute awe, as I've said before, you know, uh, when I talk about um, Best London Guns and obviously formerly when I was working with Purdy, um, the appetite that the American uh, sporting person has for uh, best guns is uh, is huge. And, uh, yeah. you know, I, I sometimes get asked questions and people say to me, you know, um, what do you what do you do when you have this? And I have to think about it, the answer and go, wow, you know, how did they know about that? particular aspect on a purdy gun or a holland gun or you know the uh, the 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 appetite and the understanding of uh, fine english guns in the united states is enormous i do admire it's an addiction, it addiction i think <laughs> i i think that um we do we do appreciate the art of it and the tradition of it and buying into something to um to give our kids you know, I podcast weekly with people and that is the number one thing is that they're in this industry. They are a hunter. They run dogs because of the fulfillment that they get with sharing it with family and friends. Sure. And yeah. So that obsession just breaks down everything because it becomes topic of conversation. You know, when, when you're doing this with other people, they ignite um, the creativity part of it. And, you know, I just could not imagine having to live life without this. Sure. And I, I'm, 
it would just crush me to have to be in your shoes to feel like I have to ask permission to do anything. Sure. And yeah. for us, like that's what that looks like when you talk. Yeah. It's like you have to ask permission to live. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the old adage, uh, it's much easier to ask for forgiveness than permission, just doesn't work over here. <laughs> if you haven't asked for permission and you do it, wow, are you in big trouble? <laughs> so what do you foresee things happening here? Like I was on the phone with SCI yesterday and they had shared with me how the lead ban laws are trying to get um, place into so many different bills in the fine print so that people aren't aware of what's going on. And so they hide the restrictions and they make it about something else, but somehow trickling down, like we talked about, you know, yeah, with the land, like they're going to make it hard for people to own land where it's safe to hunt or shoot or something, you know, and really the goal is to take away hunting and shooting and guns. Yes. Yeah. And so they're hiding it in different places and people are unaware mainly because people are so busy. They're so busy that they're going to get duped with about things that they love because nobody can stop and pause and like take the time to prioritize our rights. Yeah. They just don't know that it's happening. No, it, 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 it's creeping in. We call it the thin end of the wedge. Um, the, these moves are very, very worrying indeed. Um, you, you know, you're not alone. Uh, we, we see it over here, um, probably on a greater scale. And the, the father-grandfather uh, situation is, is changing very quickly, Um it's it's sad, but there's a lot of conversation uh, in the UK where some of the died in the wall, shall we say, long-standing traditional hunters are, are saying, I think we've had the best of it and I can't see it lasting any more than about five years. It will probably last uh, for the very high end um, for the country estates. Uh, there will still be shooting on country estates. But the um, opportunity uh, for the average guy in the street to treat himself to two or three days a season game shooting, I think that will um, be eroded, certainly within the next five years. But on the other side of the scale, clay shooting um, is, is growing in popularity, albeit it's becoming more difficult to get a gun license. Um, but there is very clear, um, should we say, signs on the horizon that whilst game shooting may not continue as we know it today, certainly clay pigeon shooting um, will be as strong, if, if not stronger, than it is today. And I encourage that. With, with anybody that's not shot before, everybody says to me, well, what's it like to shoot a shotgun? And I said, well, look, don't ask, don't let me tell you, just come out with me one day and, and do it. Yeah try it yeah. um i mean i've got a classic situation um unlike the in the united states where you have bars um and, and not so many pubs in the uk we have more pubs than bars and you know locals get chatting and one of the guys said to me he said um look you know we, we're going to have a bit of a, a boys um 
birthday. We'd like to do something good. Could we go shooting with you? I said, yeah, of course, no problem at all. And so th- these three guys came along and uh, one of the guys brought his girlfriend along. And uh, i never forget it. I was driving them to the shooting school and she was sitting in the back reading the highway code because she was about to take a driving test. And I looked in the rearview mirror. I said, will you have a go shooting? No, she said, I hate guns. I don't want anything to do with it. Absolutely nothing at all. And I said, okay, yeah, no, I respect that. That's fine. And then we moved on once we got there to the conversation um, about women being uh, better students because they listen. Uh, Men tend to be a little bit macho. I call it the 3G thing, guns, girls, and Guinness. And everybody you speak to in the United Kingdom (laughs) is an expert in guns or girls and or Guinness, although they may never have experienced any of them um <laughs> properly anyway but uh you know the lads were giving all the banter and the girl was absolutely uh dead against it and i suppose it's a shame because you know um girls do uh listen to instruction better than men and i said do you do any sport she says yeah i love badminton and i thought wow she's going to be absolutely brilliant if she has a go at this because it's just the reverse. Instead of um, moving the, the the gun to the target, you're moving the racket to to an incoming target. And uh, I said to her, "Look, will you please do me a favour? I've just got this new gun, and I'm not sure if it's going to be good for my wife. But could you just shoot it and just tell me what you think?" And she <laughs> Nobody shot it. ever tells you no. <laughs> <laughs> and she just shot it, and uh, I said, "What do you think?" And she said, "Oh." Everybody said that they kicked like a donkey. I said, no, 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 that's that's just a different thing. Uh, I said, you got very close to that, Clay. Just try this one. And she hit it. And I said, well, what do you think? She said, let me just do one more. And anyway, <laughs> we got through about a box of cartridges, and the guys were going, look, come on, Al. you know, this is not one more. This is like... And she said, no, just wait. I just want to get the hang of this. And she was totally hooked. Now, that was a girl that 20 minutes before was totally dead against guns, was told that if you fire a 20-gauge shotgun, it's going to knock you over as if you've been uh, kicked over by a donkey. Um, and, of course, these things just don't apply. And so I'm very, very keen on on educating people, getting them out in the field and letting them try it and let them make up their own uh, ideas. Um it's always better to be led by the person that you're trying to teach. Um, they have an expression in the in the British Army. Uh, I heard it from a major once. He said, the troops will form you into the leader that you need to be. And I thought about that for a minute. I thought, no, 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 you're the major. You're the guy that should be leading from the front. He said, no, it doesn't work like that. He said, the troops will form you into the leader that you need to be. And the reverse applies. When I go to the United States, and you know, I've done many talks on uh, purdy guns and how to build guns and, you know, shooting and that sort of thing. Um, I'm always keen that uh, the audience ask me questions. I can tell them that there's seven stages of making a gun and what gun fits all about and, you know, the difference between uh, one type of action and the other. And, you know, Holland action is Rogers cocking action and a, Purdy action is a Beasley action, all of these kind of things. They're all immaterial. It's better to say to somebody, right, look, I've, I've, I've been doing this since I was left school. Um, I've worked on the bench. I've designed a gun. 
bless you. <laughs> I've you. designed a gun um, for Purdy's. It's a very successful gun. Their latest gun is a Mark II model of the gun that I designed for them back in 2005. And I let them ask the questions because they have the um, they have the understanding, uh, and it's better to get from them to hear from them what they want to hear from me, if that makes sense, rather than me just stand at the front and and talk about what I think is uh, relevant. Let them tell me what they want to hear, and then I'll tell them uh, that, that give them the answers. Um, it's 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 not a lazy way of doing it. It's just a reverse way uh, of doing something to get the same result. It's extremely wise because Thank you. <laughs> I, I love this. I wrote it down, uh, especially, you know, as I'm getting back to putting my schedule together to host ladies events and things like that. It's it gives me a different perspective on how I create my program, on yeah. how I lead a team. Because you've got to lead based on the personalities that you're dealing with, right? And so sure. it's it's a it's an absolute amazing perspective on how to view the person that we see as against us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to take the people that are on the fence and say, just join us like it is so much fun and from my perspective shooting sports brings the best confidence into someone it brings out the best in someone and and you never forget the feeling of success on the clay course ever yeah. or in the field you know and at at hunt camp and so you can always revert back to that and, yeah. and it somehow brings you up and it brings a positive light on any situation when you feel like it's time for you to overcome an obstacle, especially if you'd never shot before. If you can go back to that moment and feel that sense of success, it has driven me over and over and over in competition. And then I've just I've just learned so many lessons through shooting sports. It's endless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something interesting happened to me. I, I pinged you a couple of photographs of a gun that I just delivered that uh, I had um, Perugini Vizzini build for me for a client in the UK. Um, and this guy, he, he didn't really know what he wanted, but what he told me uh, was that he, he does three or four days uh, in a season game shooting, but predominantly he shoots clays. However, he didn't want a, a, a very sort of robust Parazzi style competition gun. He wanted something that was a little bit more of a crossover gun, similar to the Purdy Sporter that I put together all those years ago. And I understood uh, what he wanted. Um, you know, At a different got, price point. Oh, completely different price point. <laughs> yeah. I love that Sporter. I tell you, like I was, I tell everybody, I'm like. Like ninety percent with a purdy in my hand. Thank you, Stephen. <laughs> but I don't always have a purdy in my hand, right? <laughs> sure. Yeah. No, I wish I did. I've got three purdies, but they're not. Uh, they're not clay busters. They're the more traditional <laughs> side by sides. Um, this guy, he he he, uh, he took delivery of the gun, and his one of his friends came along, and he said to me, he said, "How do you set about designing a gun?" 
And I thought about it for the moment and I, I drew a picture. You know, when a kid, you know, a three or four year old kid will draw, draw a picture of somebody, they've got a balloon head and they've got a stick for a body yeah. and they've got two sticks for arms and two sticks for legs. I drew that and I said, that is the most important element about designing a gun. And he looked at it and he said, what is it? I said, that's the person I'm building the gun for. And that is the most important element when I start to design a gun. I said, the length of the barrel, the stock, the, you know, all of the variations, they all come into it. But if you don't get that first stage right, if you don't use your two ears and two eyes uh, to listen and to look uh, and watch the guy when he's shooting and listen to what he's saying, I mean, God gave us two ears, uh, two eyes and one mouth. What he wants us to do is look more. He wants us to hear more, but he wants us to say less. And that's what I do when I'm listening to somebody about the sort of shooting they want to do. I look and listen and I say very little I just ask the right questions at the right time, and then I start formulating, bringing everything together. And I think that's the difference between putting a bespoke gun together because um, you're building something for that individual. It's it's not going to be um, like one of the Browning Satoris that I own. It's great for a number of people. It's really got to be quite unique, and that's the great thing about putting together a bespoke gun. Yes, of course, it's got to fit. If it doesn't fit the person, it's not fit for pro, uh, the purpose. Um, but all of these elements you can bring together. As I keep saying to this guy, unless I get that first stage right, unless I understand the client's wishes and what they want to do, all the rest, you know, with the work that the barrel maker does and the stocker does and the engraver does and the finisher does, all of these things, it, it amounts for nothing unless we get the first bit right. And he was he kind of stood back and he said, oh, do you know, I've never thought about it like that. I thought you'd just go into a shop, buy a gun and go shooting. I said, you can do that, you know, uh, <laughs> get yourself two and a half, three thousand dollars and you're going to get something that's going to last you a lifetime, particularly if it's a Browning. Uh, no disrespect for to Beretta or, you know, Maruku's or, well, Maruku is Browning, but, you know, the Caesar Green is and all the others, they're all fine guns, but uh, I just particularly like Brownings and, you know, Brownings have got a huge uh, um, following in the United States. Incidentally, you shot with a Browning and you didn't know you shot with a Browning. His name was Chris Browning and we shot with him in Thomasville in 2018. And I was going through some old pictures. Of, really? Um, Why of didn't Kevin. you tell me? Yeah, it was, uh, it was at Kevin Kelly's Game Fair in November mm -hmm. in Thomasville. And there's a picture of me and Chris Browning, who's a direct descendant of John Moses. And uh, it looked funny because he had a Purdy Sporter and I put the <laughs> caption, a, a Browning shooting with a Purdy and a Purdy shooting with a Browning. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That was such a great weekend. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? It was. It was. You know, you you helped me you you're the one that did all my dimensions at providence hill in um in mississippi because i had that problem i could yeah. not figure out that perfect fit for me and what felt great and and i finally did and that's how i i tell people it's like i wish i could tell you 
to shoot what I shoot because it works so well, because it is my go-to, right? And I cool. bet on it. However, it doesn't mean that it's going to work for everyone else. And, and you literally have to go to the store and pick it up. And I'm like, they're like, well, how will I know? I'm like, the light bulb will go on and you just know, you know, if you're not there with them to coach them through every single step of the way, it really is a feeling of, oh, that's it. It's like putting on your favorite pair of shoes or, you know, the hat that fits your head just right. You're yeah. going exactly the same way. It's like your favorite go-to extension of yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You you know, uh, Dr. Grace Studivant very well. Um, uh, she was at Provident Hill and yes. um, representing the uh, excellent uh, hearing protection um, in the UK. The we have a, we have an you, yeah, we've yeah. got an expression. If you haven't got uh, no eyes, that's uh, eye protection, no cap and no hearing protection. You can't shoot. You're not allowed to shoot on clay grounds. And I was talking to Grace about uh, her having a go with a Purdy. Uh, and I picked up a, a 20 gauge that was kind of about the right sort of size for her. And I said, right, what have you been told about shooting? And she went through it very briefly. And in 30 seconds, what she'd been told about shooting. And I said, do you know what? That's incredibly interesting. I want you to forget everything you've learned and just listen to what I tell you. And she was absolutely astonished. And she hit three birds straight off. And shes I think she's still got it on her uh, website today, her shooting with a Purdy at Provident Hill Farm. And she was so excited that she'd hit three birds straight away because she'd yeah. listened to what I said. <laughs> because the day that we met her for the first time, she had not shot before. No, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, she'd heard she's about like it. She'd been told about house. it. I don't yeah. know if you've spoken to her lately, but... Grace with Odo Pro Technologies, she's been on my podcast. I, I promote her all the time because she is changing um, protection and, and updating science in the shooting industry uh, by sharing the, the science within her industry that doesn't translate over here. We all know we need hearing protection, but we never have the right one, you know? Sure. We never have the right one. And so I didn't know the difference. I thought, well, you know, I just get these little molds made and roll with it. And yeah. it wasn't until my dad who had worked in, a, um, he had a mill workshop his whole life. And yeah. it was the ringing of all those machines and the dust collector and all this stuff. And he gets so ill in public because he can't hear what's going on at the table yeah. because of all of the um, noise, just the background noise. And so sure. she, started sending me research about how the ringing in the ears and the and the um, loss of hearing is causing early dementia and they're putting yeah. all this together so what she's doing in the shooting world and the hunting world educating about how to prevent these things um all by just having the proper hearing protection is huge and she's yeah. been embraced. I mean, she's wonderful, but she has such a great message and customer service. And, you know, she's customizing not only the fit for your hearing protection, but the proper technology for your purpose. Yes. Yeah. If you lose your hearing, you, you've lost it. You're not going to get it back. Um, sadly, I fall into that category. I, I used to shoot a lot. 
um in my teenage years i used to love going to army ranges and shooting uh, uh acp 45 1911s um you know handguns webleys the, the whole range didn't ever have any hair and protection and now i get this now and again i get tinnitus they get this ringing um a friend of mine who also used to work at purdy's with me he suffers terribly he's been shooting a lot longer than me in fact he's as we speak he's uh he's in his property in new mexico and i would guess he's somewhere out in the national forest with a, a crowd of about 10 other guys shooting uh tin cans somewhere his <laughs> hearing is terrible now when we go to the pub if there's a background noise um if they're playing uh background music for example mm-hmm. he just loses out on so much of the conversation yeah. and then he ends up shouting and everybody's saying keith why are you shouting i'm not shouting yes you are you're shouting they can hear you in the next pub no i'm not shouting um and then quite often if the if the background you know when there's a when you're in a bar and there's a lot of people talking you can't hear what everybody's saying and then you get the accusation oh he's really antisocial. He never wants yeah. to join in the conversation. He wants to join in the conversation. My God, right. does he want to join in the conversation? He just cannot hear what's going on. And so the work that Grace is doing cannot be underestimated. It is so oh, incredibly no. important. You know, yeah, I know it's cumbersome, you know, having big earphones on or, you know, um, you know, putting hearing protect, but it's got to be done. Otherwise, in later life, you know, you're going to miss out on so much. She also says that she's saving a lot of marriages. <laughs> I, I bet she is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like misunderstandings happen because you miss here, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So she's yeah. got some fun jokes about that. But you're right. Um, You know, especially in the dog training world, no one takes the time to put in hearing protection when you're running dogs you think oh i'm just shooting like six or eight shells today based on how many dogs you're doing you know fun intro or you're shooting you know just a couple of birds a day for a dog doing drills things like that so um i'm wearing the sound gear uh i don't remember what model it is but i think it's their top of the line model and they are also bluetooth and they're like so I just turn them on once I put them in and, and I don't have a big muff. So it's not in the way of no. me mounting my gun. And um, and you can wear them and just talk like normal and you hear like normal and you can play your phone, your podcast, your music, your book, yeah. whatever. You know, they, they all feed through that. So once you get those, not only do you have hearing protection, but you don't need Apple AirPods. You use these on the plane, on all your travels, you know. Yeah. It's worth the investment when you see that they're used for everything and could give you a longer lifespan, you know, an sure. enjoyable life. So yeah. I'm yeah. I'm so I'm so proud. Like we met her at the very beginning of her career when she wasn't even a shooter, but she loved the culture of our world. And she wanted to be a part of it. And she saw that there was a need for her knowledge coming out of the medical field. And like, I'm just so grateful that she's our friend. You know, that was a really special friendship to build and and support what she's um, like her mission. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, she's doing a great job. She is. She's, she's everywhere here. So you're going to have to come back and visit all of us and we'll have to do our, our season tour. Yeah, let's do it, Anna. Let's do it. I mean, you know, there's so many things happening over here. I'm seeing, you know, fantastic guns being almost surrendered. Um, and I'm thinking there's got to be a way of getting these guns to the United States, particularly the small, uh, I mean, uh, just two months ago, three months ago, um, a guy brought in a pair of uh, 28 gauge Ariettas. Um, they're fabulous guns. Not really uh, a huge application in the UK. Um, pairs of guns generally only for grouse shooting. Uh, 28 gauge, not really. You've got a big, uh, got to use a bigger 12 gauge for uh, for fast moving grouse. Um, but quail shooting in the United States with a 28 gauge um that's just this there's nothing else like it and i've got this pair of guns over here you know um 10 years ago they were twenty five thousand pounds um today if somebody gave this guy 10 grand for them it would snatch their hand off uh and incidentally arietta have just reformed they're, they're back in business so there was a, a period um for, for too many years i've got to say when Arietta in, in Spain were just not uh, in business anymore, um, they're back in business and they've got a, a very fine over and under product. I've not shot it yet, but people I talk to uh, say that it's it's really a serious gun, um, which is making me worry because I'm doing great strides with the with representing Perugini Vizzini, the people that used to help build the Purdy Sporter. And we're great, uh, gaining a lot of momentum over here very small very niche market the price point is you know from sort of fifteen thousand pounds to um twenty five thousand pounds or beyond and uh there's there's people out there that appreciate um somebody with a lot of experience i mean this guy said to me the other day he said you know you're quite unique and i said well, how's that then and he yeah. said you you work for purdy's and i said yes he said, you started off on the bench as a you know 16-year-old kid building the guns. I said, yeah, but I left. I didn't you know, finish the, the apprenticeship. No, he said, but you went back. And from a blank piece of paper, you designed a gun. And, and they got you into that job because of your understanding of, of, of commerce and what a gun needs to be and clay shooting and game shooting and all the different things. Uh, and he said, where else are you going to find somebody with your level of experience that's dealt with people at the very highest end who uh, expect and appreciate the very best attention, the very best uh, advice and expertise. He said, and cap it all, he said, you grew up in the home of the NRA <laughs> in, in, in the windmill on Wimbledon Common. He said, where are you going to get somebody else like you? And I, I said, know. Oh. <laughs> so you are just, one of a kind yeah that's what you got to, i'm going to get a hat i'm, I'm, I'm going to uh, have uh embroidered under av outdoors my my baseball cap and it's going to say <laughs> i'm one of a kind <laughs> but, I love you know, it. that's what i really enjoy doing i love speaking to people and just passing on the knowledge you know knowledge is the only thing that the more you divide it up between more people the bigger it gets you know you can't do that with a piece of cake can you the more you divide it up the cake's gone <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, um, oh, if you I do that with that. knowledge you know it gets bigger <laughs> oh that is so great well um 
did we cover everything on our list that we had talked about? Um, yeah, I I think so. Um, I know that there's just so much for you to share, and yeah. we love your stories. We value your wisdom and your outlook. And um, I say next time we come on, I would like to break down uh, the foundations of wing shooting because I talk to you and message you about this all the time because I want to perfect this. You know, I am a geek when it comes to techniques. And this was that was our first conversation we ever had. Yeah. I'll tell you what, incidentally, that video you sent me of you mounting a gun. Yes. uh, And, you know, we're talking about finger off trigger thumb safety etc etc um your gun mount has improved (laughs) in the last couple of years uh you know it was a bit like um we use the expression over a bit like a farmer uh (laughs) pitchforking hay you know the 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 gun goes down that you know the pitchfork goes down to the ground the hay comes up and then they tip it the other way and you were kind of seesawing the gun up you know the gun Mm -hmm. the barrels were down and then the barrels were up and then the stock came into your shoulder. It was all a bit cumbersome, but you're doing it now in a, a very much a sort of British way, which is really rather jolly good. You're oh. bringing the gun up in one movement and it's um, you're just bringing it up uh, exactly as it should be. Interestingly, the French uh, and the English, they've never really gotten them much uh, since the Napoleonic Wars. Um, but even in France, the... Uh, the French um, aficionados of wing shooting, they really want to emulate the British way of doing it. So perhaps we've got some sort of monopoly on uh, on how to do it properly over here in the UK. I'd like yeah, to Yeah, that, that. that's what I've been taught. And, and my coach, which, man, I wanted to get you guys together so many times and it's just not worked out. But yeah. he, um, you know, I shot with him every day for like two and a half years, like six days a week, we were shooting yeah. together. And Is this the guy we met at Barnsley Gardens? Yeah, we did. We did yeah. have lunch with him that time. Yes, you did yeah. shoot with him. That's right. I was like, man, that was like my, my icon thing. I forgot that happened. That was actually yeah. Hater Bug's birthday. Yeah. She followed, remember she followed us around with her BB gun? That was during, that was before she could really shoot. She was what, four? Yeah, and it, it was only a few weeks before she drove off in the golf buggy. I know she did try off and leave us. Um, so what happened was I was originally trained for clays with a pre-mount. Yeah. But my heart is with wing shooting and hunting and with the dogs. And so I'm having to break a lot of habits. They're not bad habits. They were excellent yeah. for their purpose. But now I understand... Um, like we talk about instinctual shooting and the importance of, of teaching that first. Yeah. And so, so therefore you're not fighting. Like the main thing I think that I've struggled with the most is number one, I have astigmatism and that creates a problem with depth perception. And, um, and then as a female, sometimes we have eye dominance issues where uh, our eyes like fight for dominance Yes. So that can create a problem as well. And so once you get into the nitty gritty of all the variables um, that are that happen or that you have to deal with well before you pull the trigger, you know, I have almost every single problem <laughs> that you can yes. have. Yeah. And yeah. so it is it is hard and it takes time and 
and I've loved it. And I'm just, I just want to be proficient because I love the art. Yeah. Uh, all these conversations that we talked about of, of you know, this, the skill sets and perfecting it, being able to talk about it, being able to teach it, being able to keep it alive. Um, yeah. I have all those books. I know I've talked about like, we need to do a book club and, <laughs> and, and I know there's so much more information than what's on the pages that you would have to add to it. And I just, I value our time so much together. Yeah. Well, do you know what, Anna, on the subject of Idom, it's just very quickly, um, it, more than one occasion, uh, I speak to a girl that perhaps, you know, has been shooting for many years and then she breaks off and then she comes back and it's the same gun and it's the same targets and everything else. And she said to me, Steve, I don't know what's happening, but, you know, I haven't been shooting for a couple of years. Um, I, I could always, you know, shoot uh, 23 out of 25 on this layout. And now I'm struggling to get 12 or 15 uh, targets. Uh, can you just watch me and see what I'm doing wrong? And before they even mount the gun, I say, how how old's your child? And they say, well, it's 18 months. How do you know that? And I said, well, that's the problem. And they said, what's, what's my child got to do with my shooting? I said, your eye dominance has changed. And the interesting thing is um, huh. women, their eye dominance very often changes when they've given birth. And nobody knows why. But it's time. I've never heard that. You check it out on on YouTube uh, about eye dominance after pregnancy. Um, It's it's so, so common. But unless you've watched somebody shooting um, and unless they say, you know, I could I was a very good shot. Now I'm a very bad shot. And it's the same gun. It's the same target. I've been shooting for 15 years. Then all of a sudden something's changed. Um, it's nine times out of 10, it's their eye dominance has changed and they're looking up the side of the gun, whereas before they were looking down the rib, um, it's just eye dominance changes. And no, I, I've asked so many uh, eye surgeons and first of all, they don't really understand what I'm talking about. They understand eye dominance, but I, I say, you know, why, why is this so prevalent with, um, you know, uh, ladies that have just had a given birth and you know, nobody, nobody can really put their finger on it, but have a look, check it out. You might find the that answer. Is, that <laughs> is amazing. So I still wear contacts and I hate it because in the hunting field with the wind or in the duck blind or whatever, when it's cold, your eyes get sticky or your contacts swirl and then things become fuzzy and it's just so annoying, but you're right. I've not found a surgeon that understands shooting for me to trust him to have surgery. Yeah. And I would love to do away with all of these problems. And maybe it would even help my depth perception. There yeah. are just some birds on the clay field I cannot read. My brain just can't calculate that distance. And it's frustrating because I definitely know how to shoot it but I can't get to it because the calculation is wrong in my head and I can't fix that. Yeah. 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 It's your brain's taking over and your eye dominance is, is probably fluctuating a little bit. Um, you know, depending <laughs> literally, as you said, depending on which way the wind's blowing, you know, if one side of your face is getting the wind more, um, that eye will, uh, react, um, more than the other one. And so you're going to get, particularly um depth of perception um that 
that is really important. Um, and when you're shooting gun up, uh, it doesn't matter quite so much. The disadvantage of gun up, of course, you're not looking at a full um you know 180 i think the average human being can uh, see 184 degrees that's slightly past uh, just behind their shoulders when looking forward um but when your guns up you're kind of your uh field of vision is a little bit more restricted that's why I'll, i i can't shoot gun up to save my life i used to do a lot of um what we call abt and and, and trap shooting all gun up uh yeah. And now I just can't shoot with a gun mounted. Uh, I've got to have the gun just out of my shoulder, you know, just above the hip. And so that when I see the bird, I can move. Uh, we call it move, mount, shoot. I can move, mount the gun and, and shoot at the target. And quite often you see people, they don't step into the direction of the bird. Um, they tend to be cement footed, as I call it. They don't... Uh, lift the foot up to step into where the uh, clay is going. And, okay, that's get... called the, um, it starts with an S. What method is that? There's, uh... Well, it's, it's you've got to have... Um, Not Stanley. You're... Yeah, you've got to, uh, oh, uh, Percy Stanbury. <laughs> Stanbury, yeah. yes, yeah, yes. Percy Stanbury, yeah. Yes. Yeah, you've got to be able to move your, generally when you're assessing a target, if, if you're, looking at a particular target at a clay ground that's going more or less the same direction you know when you when you get into that uh uh pen uh when you're on on the peg ready to shoot you know where the bird's coming from and you know where where you're going to uh, pick it up and you know where you're going to shoot it so generally your foot is pointing where you're going to pick it up and where you're going to shoot it it's not pointing where the bird's coming from because you know that bit already you want to be in the killing zone, as we call it. Uh, and unless people are prepared to literally move and step into that that killing zone, be it moving your left foot or your right foot, you're not going to be um, able to keep your gun moving. A lot of people, they, you, we, we all see it, they squeeze the trigger and bang, that's it. And they stop the gun the minute they, they've uh, squeezed the trigger. They never finish the shot. And you've got to finish the shot. Otherwise, you're not going to finish the job. Okay. Well, when are we going to do this? In two weeks? And we'll talk about techniques in shooting. Yeah, cool. That'll be marvelous. That'll be marvelous. I look forward I to so. it as always. Okay. So if you guys are following Stephen, go back. There's um, part one and part two at the very beginning of All American Wing Shooting Podcast. And he is full of shooting information. So we're going to have him on as a regular because I learned so much and I want to continue all of your stories. I've written down probably 10 quotes already. I'm going to go put it in my, in my wing shooting notebook where I keep <laughs> all of, all of the quotes and the tips and the tricks that I've learned along the way. Cool. That's very kind of you. All right. We'll give Miss Lynn a hug for me and uh, we'll do. We'll be um, back in touch. And you're always and same with JC and Tater. Give them a big hug. I sure will. And uh, you look after yourself, enjoy <laughs> it, and just remember, uh, good shooting is safe shooting. Thank you, Stephen. Nothing else matters. Take care.
Papa gave daddy and daddy gave to me 